out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist, musician, singer, songwriter. It's the one and only Doug March, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry was in various bands, including Tree People, who have recently had a single of theirs, Andy Warhol, released, it was recorded in the 80s, I do believe, on K Records, so there was the Tree People, make a note, but um, went on to other bands, the Halo Benders with Calvin Johnson, and is obviously part of Built to Spill, who are still touring and have got material out and a tour coming up 2023. So um, with all that excitement, I think we should get down to that information that we all need from Doug, which is, um, you know, after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, which gets edited out, we get down to that exciting subject that was the very early formative years, the musical awakening. Anyway, Doug, tell us more. Tell us now. Well, when I was a little kid, I listened to just the radio and it was, They played all kinds of stuff, you know. It was when I was a kid in the 70s. I was born in 69. Yeah. So as a kid in the 70s, it was like Pop 40 radio, which had, you know, rock and roll and soul music and disco and um, country music. Like it was just kind of a mishmash of all different kinds of stuff that was on the radio. Yeah. But none of it back. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was saying, did you have, did your parents have any kind of musical interest or uh, influence on you at that stage in life nope not really my mom I didn't think she was that interested in music I had an older brother and sister they're right. like six and eight years older than me and they did they they had like we had a handful of records like a dozen records or something in the house that belonged to them and then they also just listened to the radio they they just loved music it was always somehow it, I knew that it was important kind of yes. through them it's always good to have an older brother or sister. They they have massive influence, don't they? I had an older brother. Um, I had two. One didn't have much influence, but the other one did because um, I thought he was just wonderful. And um, yes, he he, he was uh, seven years older, and he introduced me to, the, to that world of prog rock. You know, the world that because he was a seventies kid, I suppose. And um, so it was like you know, yeah, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Genesis, and Wishbone Ash, and. Yes, you know, Focus, Focus at the Rainbow was a classic album of Pete Frampton Comes Live. But interestingly enough, you know, I sort of come from a very sort of working class family. So we didn't have a record player in the house. It was always the radio and it was the TV, which was the kind of the two main thing. But it was a record player appeared in the sort of 73 time. And my brother brought, you know, got um, Sergeant Pepper and also uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And those two albums, you know, I just remember being mesmerized by the the sort of interest and the lyrics. And also at the same time, you know, The Carpenters were another album that appeared mm. in our lives. Oh, and, nice. and, and that, you know, mm. I mean, uh, so I was very lucky because obviously The Carpenters are you know, just amazing. So, and I always think that if you like The Carpenters, you definitely like Joy Division and The Smiths because, you know, lyrically they're right up there, aren't they? So um, that's funny. I haven't really, I haven't, I still haven't gone back and listened to The Carpenters um, as an adult. And I keep meaning to and just keep forgetting to. Yes. Uh, but like that Frampton record and that Elton John record were two of the 10 records that were at, at my house, you know. Elton John was incredible to me as a kid, for sure. 
Yes. And I mean, you know, I suppose it was Bernie Taupin, his lyrics were about mm -hmm. various kind of, you know, mythical characters, or not just mythical, but just kind of, you know, in, from Marilyn Monroe to, you know, Roy Rogers to, you know, in, incredible songs. So, yeah, he had a good one. So, yes. So then as, as the decade progressed, I mean, obviously you were sort of just a bit younger than me. When did you start sort of looking to play a guitar? Oh, like when I started high school. Um, I moved from a Twin Falls to Boise, Idaho, moved to a, big, a bigger place. And and I had like a month before I started high school that I didn't have anything to do, didn't have any friends. And I, every once in a while, picked up my brother's guitar and tried to do something, but never could get very far. And this time I just like did it, got serious. And I had a bunch of time on my hands and no friends and learned how to play that yes. month. God, that's such a romantic image, isn't it, really? So um, yeah, it's a bit like Morrissey stuck in his bedroom waiting for the sort of knock at the door with Johnny Marr to say, do you want to be in a band? It has that romanticism, doesn't it? So did you, what was your kind of first single that you bought or your first gig you went to? Hmm. Well, I guess the first kinds of things, like Billy Squire was the first cassette that I bought with my own money, you know. Um, but like the things that were important to me was like, David David Bowie was one of the first things that I got when I when I I feel like around that time I learned to play guitar and started high school I switched over from kind of hard rock and heavy metal and stuff to like alternative music and stuff so that year that first year of high school was um the uh David Bowie was my number one followed closely by REM and the Smiths like the first REM record Murmur and um Smiths uh, Hatful of Hollow that yes. was the, those were my main jams. I was the church was a big band for me at that time in my life. Yeah, um, Lord Crusade. I don't know if you know that record. Yes, um, yes. Uh, and then you know I still kind of liked some classic rock and stuff. Still, I was all through high school and stuff. I still appreciated you know Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and stuff. Yes, well, absolutely, and and so because because I missed punk completely. I'm well, not completely, but I was a bit just too young, and also I was in the you know stuck in the countryside, so punk rock never sort of came to to the village at all, really. But it was kind of eighty three, eighty four. That was kind of the years of the Smiths, and I think that for me was a was the turning point for four for five years. The Smiths were that soundtrack from eighty three to eighty seven. So during you that do, period, yeah. you were you were probably about fourteen at that stage, weren't you? So you were just at high school and um yes that that was when it when it all started to I, happen yeah I, I can distinctly remember hearing the smiths on the radio for the first time and just thinking it was so cool i just loved the guitar sounds because like into rem and it just sounded just so great like kind of punkish and but just so melodic and and then the lyrics like when he's it was it was the song girl afraid yes when he sings the line like and she doesn't even like me, and I know because she said so. I just thought that was so hilarious to, you know, I never heard anyone just be that kind of blunt. Yes. Well, still, uh, well, you know, well, silly in the, UK, it, in the UK, I mean, and there was like lots of little subsections, you know, in, in the alternative world from like goth and New Paisley and narco punk. But on the chart front, you know, we had that kind of Trevor Horn production sound and those sort of you know, Spandau Ballet, Duran Duran, 
you know, the Trevor Horn production, you know, ABC, Frankie, I mean, that was quite a big thing, you know, so Top of the Pops was full of these kind of very happy, clappy people. And then mm. under that was like people like the Smiths, who were obviously, you know, talk, you know, who were just kind of awkward and difficult and, and weren't cool at all. So I think it was kind of easy to sort of relate to a band like that from someone like as nerdy as me. So that was that was quite interesting. So then so when you were at high school, did, is that where you formed Farm Days? Was this your first band? Yeah, that was uh, me with a couple of friends that I'd left in Twin Falls. And then I'd go visit on a week or, you know, a weekend a month or something. I'd go visit and we'd share the songs we'd written with each other. And um, yep. Yes. So was because in the UK, I mean, at this stage, you know, there, there was and one thing I've noticed you haven't done this show for quite a long time there are a lot of indie bands and I think part of it was kind of driven by a certain amount of poverty at this stage because there was a lot of unemployment and there was this kind of whole tension between the left and the right you know the yuppie against the the sort of alternative people you know and especially when you're young unemployment was just kind of almost a career path you know we we sort of signed on got housing benefit got housing you know council tax paid and got 40 pound a week so you know it was kind of you know it was almost kind of easy to be just kind of in the system of kind of benefit handouts really and when you're sort of 18 it's it doesn't feel too much of a stigma but when especially when everybody else is like doing it so what was it like economically and socially for you in you know in america well, there was nothing like that. We all had jobs. Everyone had to work. You know, no one was, I didn't, you know, if someone was unemployed, it was for a short amount of time because you just couldn't survive. Yes. So we all worked day jobs and, and then played music, you know, at nighttime, you know, after I got out of high school, obviously, once I went out on my own and the tree people started and stuff, I was, we were all, yep, worked our day jobs and then just lived for, you know, the evening where we could get together and, Practice. So did you leave? Did you leave school or go to college at eighteen? Was it one of those I, kind of? Uh, yeah, I, I went to college a little bit, but I stayed in Boise, and I went to college for less than a year and dropped out. Right, and then eighty-eight. This is the year the tree people start, isn't it? Yep, does. Yep, I dropped out of. I th I don't even. I think I might have dropped out of college before tree people started. I can't really remember. All around right. the same time. Were you on a kind of, at that stage, were you on quite a mission to sort of, you know, this was going to be your career path? Not at all. It was, it was my um, passion though. It was all I wanted to do, but I didn't, I never imagined that it was anything like a career. It, that's not even, it was never a consideration, but yeah, it was my main passion. Yeah, that's interesting because, because in a way, again, you know, being a slightly, you know, interesting but slightly simplistic kind of idea of this period, because of eighty three to eighty seven, the the years of the Smiths, when they break up, it feels like you know a JFK moment. Where were you when you heard the Smiths had broken up? And then, <laughs> and and then, you know, there was like that next wave, like the the ecstasy kind of generation start to appear, and there's a new wave of sixteen, eighteen year olds who want their soundtrack. So suddenly. You know, we had the dance scene. So with Tree People starting, this is kind of like the late 80s, isn't it, at this stage? Yeah, totally. And as you know, punk, we were into punk rock. Those guys were in a hardcore band and the, the three of them and then, you know, became Tree People, became a lot. We became kind of a lot mellower and then kind of got heavier as we went on. It was kind of a strange thing. When we first, even though they were a hardcore band, when I joined the band, we were kind of like really mellow and then got harder as we practiced and got better at our instruments. Yes. A couple of switched instruments, so they kind of starting from zero again. 
I know, it's interesting. So what was it? Because your first album, this was the one, No Mouth, isn't it? Yeah, No Mouth by Petting. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's like just our demo tape. Exactly. So on that record, I play acoustic guitar and it's just, it's, yeah, kind of weird sort of poppy kind of stuff or whatever. And then, and then as we got more better at practicing, I got a good guitar and started playing distorted guitar, learned how to play lead guitar a little bit. And then we started turning into like a, you know, punk band. Yes, well, absolutely. So was there a big, because one of the the kind of, we had, you know, in, in the UK, we had John Peel. The John Peel show was a huge kind of influence on us. And also we had three weekly, you know, music papers like the NME, Sounds, Melody Maker, who were, who mm-hmm. was sort of fun, fantastic and then John Peel had this kind of compilation I remember it was Sub Pop 100 and he started playing these kind of amazing tracks from Seattle and there was that was when Bleach came out and um, mm-hmm. we all went to see Bleach at the Norwich Arts Centre they were supporting Tad at the time um, mm-hmm. yes Nirvana so so did that did that kind of Seattle scene have a massive inf- you know impact on on the band and yourself yeah I think it did um yeah, we all knew about it right away. We were friends with Tad. He's from Boise, so he was a friend of ours. And we, we first moved to Seattle, the band. We played a couple shows with them and stuff. Um, and, you know, I wasn't hugely into any of that sub-pop stuff. I was more into Dinosaur and the Pixies and Butthole Surfers. There's a lot of other bands that I preferred to the sub-pop bands. But I we definitely appreciated what they were doing. And we recorded with Jack and Dino. and um you know yeah tried to try to get sub pop to sign us our guitar player went and tried to talk to to them and stuff so you know it was definitely a, a big deal but we also kind of it wasn't it wasn't a huge like there were other things that were more important to us and and then in the seattle scene when we got there we met a lot of other bands that are part of other little scenes like of a hardcore scene there and you know just like uh, bands that jammed in the same jam space as us and they all kind of had different scenes they were in different bars they played at and stuff and we were able to kind of we we're kind of chameleon-y a little bit where we could play different places and fit in with these different groups so yes and on your because the next album or the one we talk about is guilt regret embarrassment isn't it this is on on toxic shock records isn't it was that were they um the the kind of label you wanted to be on at that stage well, at that stage, we just were psyched to get any kind of label at all. And that that record is, to me, the pinnacle of the band. That's us at our best. That's our best songs when we practice the most, the main lineup. Like, t- to me, that's tree people. Um, and that I don't know how we hooked up with this, with Toxic Shock, but he was cool. He, he, he was in Tucson, Arizona, and he actually put the record out. And then after five years, he gave it back to us. And we released it on K Records. And we actually just uh, a couple weeks ago, we just released it again on K Records, like a new version of it with some bonus tracks, like some some mouth, some of the songs from Mouth, uh, No Mouth Pipeting. Um, anyway, so yes. that's our main, that's to me is the is the quintessential Tree People record. Everything else is okay. And that yes. one is like the one I'm really proud of. And whose idea was it to do the the Andy Warhol, you know, Bowie's Andy Warhol? Probably me. Yeah, was the Bowie guy, yeah. I mean, everyone was into it. Everyone liked it, but I'm pretty sure that's my, uh, that's my sure. idea. Have you heard the Donna Gillespie version, you know, the one that she's done with? I think it was Mick Ronson was on guitar as well. No, uh-uh. 
Yeah, well, do check it out, Donna Gillespie. Oh, wow. She was she was she was on Main Man Records or Main Man <laughs> Management with Tony DeFries, and um, she does oh, a really nice version of it. You know, it's it's worth checking out. But um, yeah, so at the moment you're kind of on K Records. They are reissuing some of these bits and pieces, aren't they? No doubt, and also Andy Warhol with singles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're, they're all sort of happening. So then, after that album, what happens with the band next? After that record, um, we keep working hard, and then Wayne, our drummer, and Pat, our bass player, have a falling out. They have kind of not gone along for years, and then they get into a fight. Wayne quits the band, and we got Tony Reed to play drums for us. Yes. And it was just a really lucky situation where we needed a drummer like you know, Wayne quit and we had a gig the next week. And somehow this guy, Tony, who lived in Bremerton, you know, a couple hours away from Seattle, he somehow knew, I can't remember how he knew he, we needed a drummer, but he knew all our songs. He, and he, was, and he, he knew all our new songs that hadn't been recorded yet because he had live recordings of them. He was just a cool super fan. Yeah, and he was able awesome. to step in and join the band. So he ended up playing drums on the next record, the... um uh something vicious for tomorrow yes um, and what was and, it like having a bit of a change of the lineup did that sort of was that a relief in some ways or did you you know struggle at, I mean, the, some... at the time well at the time we just felt so fortunate that we found someone that could step in you know and so it was sad to not have wayne in the band and to have it change but in a way just the just like the we it was so amazing that, that we found someone that fit in so well that we were we were, you know, just kind of happy about that and glad to keep playing. We were, you know, the three of us were like, we want, this is all we really want to do. So we're going to keep doing it. Yes, absolutely. And that was just kidding. And then you follow up with the next one, um, which comes out. For, God, you're prolific at this stage. Because that's one thing I've noticed with all these interviews is that most bands have a, a five-year narrative. You know, they get together, they have the 12-month 12 12 honeymoon period. You know, they, you know, they get a single John Peel in this country would play it. Then they get a John Peel session, the first album. And they play, they basically do three albums quite quickly. And then it's all like, then it kind of crashes and burns. So when you came to do actual reenactment, did it feel like the band, when you went into the studio, did it feel like the band were almost coming to the end at that point? Well, actually, by the time we were doing, um, by the time we did Just Kidding, the record after... Um, uh something vicious we'd had we had another drummer this guy um eric ockry and at that point pat quit the band the bass player because he moved back to boise to raise a family and and then i kind of um uh, there's some kind of thing where i also kind of didn't really want to do the band and for a little while i kind of want to take a break and other guys wanted to keep going so it ended up by the time just kidding happened um scott and i are the only two people left in the band and we weren't really working together so on just kidding it's mostly scott's record and i play uh, there's like three or so, so songs of mine and they're not that good it's just the band was it wasn't a band at that point anymore it's just a studio project almost right and then and then i was gone and then actual reenactment I'm not, I wasn't even in the band. It was Scott and, and three non-original members. Yes. My God, Eric. A lot of people called Eric and John and Scott. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of Eric's and 
Yes. Mm, yeah. So, so what was it like no longer being in the band? Did you have an ex- existential sort of moment or crisis or were you quite relieved? No, I was bummed. I, I loved being in the band. That's all I wanted to do. So I was really disappointed. But um, at the time, I also, you know, was I was starting a family, too. And um, and just it was kind of a miscommunication. I think those guys could have maybe. It was, it was all kind of about one trip to go play a one show in New York City that I didn't want to go to and they wanted to. And it was kind of like there was no compromise with any with with any of us. You know, they wanted to do it badly enough to not have me in the band anymore to do it. And I was I was unhappy about it, but I accepted it. Yes, my God, that's it. You had to walk away, as Joy Division say, in silence. So then so then your next musical moment is built to spill, isn't it? Yeah, so basically, I had a bunch of songs that were going to be tree people songs, and was in a you know ready to record them right away, and found found a couple of people and someone that had a studio that would let us use it on off hours for cheap, and made made the first built spill record. Yes, my God, you're 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 suddenly there's no stopping you at this stage. Were you able to sort of do this as a side project while sort of? Um... Yeah, having a day job, or did you at this stage in the nineties manage to sort of make built built spill a sort of a full time occupation? No, yeah, this was just um, working in the day and then going at nighttime and recording. Right, my God, you know, the nineties for you was so prolific, and it was kind of an interesting time because in the UK, you know, we had that Brit pop period with Blur and Oasis and Pulp and people like that. So, yes, built the spill. You know, you you suddenly sort of shared the airwaves did john peel pick up on the band i don't know i i I remember hearing i think tad was on john peel one time and he played a tree people song but i don't know i don't know if he ever was into us or not yes i know it's it's a tricky tricky little number wasn't it really so how who he was and stuff you know we all we were all aware of john peel but yes And how did the sort of the, the period with Built Spill kind of progress? Because you obviously at this stage you bring out you're still on the same record label, aren't you? When you do ultimate yeah. alternative waivers. And then yeah, again, it's this prolific kind of 70, yeah, 94 you do, there's nothing wrong with love, perfect from now on, seven uh, 97, and then keep it like a secret in 99. So the band is um is kind of in full flow at this point. Yeah, um, it was, we got signed to Warner Brothers, I guess, in 95. And that's when I, that's when I was able to quit my day job and just focus on music. And um, um, we didn't really become less prolific, even though I had more time to work. But um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, how did your kind of creative kind of... um work guy you know just thinking of people like david bowie who spent most of the 60s slightly sort of fudging around and getting bits and pieces and then he's obviously gets it in the 90s did you did your sort of creative processes change much during that period i don't know maybe somewhat yeah it kind of differs from record to record you know like um Keep It Like a Secret was the first really like collaborative record where we jammed a bunch and came up with ideas together. Whereas right. Perfect From Now On and There's Nothing Wrong With Love, those were records that I had the songs and just showed them to those guys and they learned them. Um, and, you know, and then there's differences too as far as how much overdubbing we would do or um, 
you know, but mostly, most of it's, you know, the same kind of ideas, sitting around with a guitar and messing around till they come up with a little idea and then making up a melody and then figuring out words later on. Yeah. Kind of all along. And also you, you produce, you're the producer on this, uh, on this period is Phil, isn't it? Phil Eck. Yeah, Phil Eck. Eck. Mm-hmm. Eck. <laughs> so was that, was that kind of a, a, a relationship that sort of obviously suited both him and you as a, as a sort of creative force? For sure. Yeah. I and mean, we met him through Up Records who put out our first record or put out a, there's nothing wrong with love. And we met him. We really got along well. And he was a fan of the band. So I really felt comfortable around him because he was, I, I was pretty insecure at that time about the the music I was making. And I liked it all right, but I wasn't, I didn't think it was as good as, you know, a, a, the other bands that were around at that time. Right. So it was really, it was really important to have a producer who was into it. And, you know, when I got frustrated or, disappointed in what I was doing he would kind of cheer me on and stuff so he, yes. he had that role and and then he was also just really good he had studied under da- Jack and Dino and he just really made good sounding records you know yeah but you were also doing a, another project with Kelvin at this stage in the 90s yeah and that was just a little I just wanted to make some music basically I wanted to just make music and have someone else be the singer and and so I reached out to Calvin. I didn't really know him, but I was a fan of his music. And we were kind of knew some people, had people in common. And so I reached out to him and we, yeah, just kind of fucked around and did that stuff. And he, and then I ended up singing on it just because we were goofing around. But the original idea was he would be the singer and I would just make the music. Yes. I mean, when you, because your solo album that comes out in 2002, which is, um, now you know that that sort of has a complete it's quite it has a much more of a slide guitar vibe doesn't it it's it's kind of change it changes quite a lot from a lot of the bands that you were in at this stage was that quite a nice experience being able to do a solo album and make it quite different yeah that was uh when i finished when i was mixing keep it like a secret in 99 or whatever um I just kind of got tired of rock and roll and alternative music and I just stopped listening to it and I didn't want to play it. And I started listening to some old blues stuff and I wanted to just learn how to play slide just because I just wanted to learn the technique and I enjoyed it. And so I'd make up my own little riffs instead of learning real blues songs. I would just make up little riffs and practice them over and over again, trying to get the technique down. And after, after a few months of that, I had a bunch of little licks that I'd written and then I put them together and made songs out of them and recorded that stuff just kind of for myself and then when it was done I was like oh it'd be nice maybe to put this out and then eventually yeah. it came out because you do there's quite a gap between ancient melodies of the future and then you in reverse was that was the with was the O years quite tricky at that at times or were you just kind of had a lot of other projects on yeah, I actually, I actually recorded that solo record like in 2000. And then, so I recorded it before Ancient Melodies of the Future, but then it took a few years before it actually came out. And then after Ancient Melodies of the Future came out, I wanted to just take a break. I was burnt out. I, I Like I said, I was burnt out on rock music before we even made that record. And then I wanted to take a break for a little while. And then... And then when I got the band back together in 04, maybe, or something, 
um, it was fun. We were excited about it. And it was, and then we made you in reverse because we were, and that was again, more of a collaborative record with and, and Jim Roth, who'd been playing guitar with us live for years. He joined us on that record in the studio and, and Brett Netson, who'd been in and out of the band over the years, he was on that record a bunch too. And we, that's when we became like a solid five piece, three guitar band. Yes. And you didn't have Phil producer. This was the first, the first album without him, wasn't it? Yeah, I can't remember exactly what happened. I feel like there's some kind of scheduling thing or something, and we just decided let's try something else. Yes, and then as we get to the end of the decade, there is there is no enemy, which is your seventh album. Is this almost? Are you at? No, you still got another one, which is Untethered Moon. So, what was the vibe like with the band at this stage? Uh, uh, that was still this five piece, and those songs were. I don't know. They were a little more me bringing songs to the band, but they were, but then they had a lot of collaborative stuff. And it was when, um, uh, and, and at this point, Brett Netson had been really integrated into the band. He'd been playing live with us for a few years. So to me, it's kind of those two records are really like the most gelled five piece versions of the band, you know, where the band, where the band got really good live and stuff. Like, it was a point where I was really confident, finally, after everything through the 90s, I was not confident at all. And then these records is where I felt like, oh, now I understand how to, you know, make make a record and stuff. Did you get um, Paul Leary from The Buttholes to play on, on one <laughs> track? In So how did that collaboration come together, all project, all song? I'm just a huge fan, and the song kind of reminded me of him a little bit. And I just sort of asked the producer to reach out to him just to see if it was anything. And he was up for it. And he just, he just recorded his track at his studio in Texas and sent it in. And then he sent it in, he sent it in. And I was like, I listened to it and I was like, could you maybe do the little, uh, I like sort of coached him a little bit of how to change the solo a little bit, like so annoyingly. And then he did that. He did what I asked him to do. And it was cool. God, that was very nice. And then we met him. We played with them like a year later. We played a show with them and I got to meet him. And he was really sweet. And it was really cool. Yes. Blimey. And then only eight years ago, you did your eighth album, Untethered Boon. So again, there's a bit of a gap. Was there just kind of, yes, life and just having the inspiration? Because this record, was this was released on vinyl for Record Store Day, which people love, don't they, intensely. So, um, mm -hmm. yes, What? how did this particular album come together? Uh, well, like you said, just life kind of stuff makes it take a while. And, you know, as you get older, time goes faster and you have more stuff you're supposed to do, it seems like. It um, does. It does. Yeah, it's just trying to get your car insurance sorted out can take a day mm -hmm. can't it but exactly. then it was quite a, there was quite a change in lineup of this one so was that quite a tricky kind of experience for you having to sort of lose a couple of members gain a few more members and almost feel like you're starting again yeah i think maybe 2012 a couple of years after um after one of those records um the rhythm section quit and we got new guys and it was really fun, though, too. It was, it was an exciting time, too, to have these two new guys in the band. And we all kind of felt reinvigorated. And then we played for a couple years. And then I kind of, at that point, I I started getting more worried about life in general and, and supporting my family and stuff. 
And we were, we, there's the five of us and our sound guy, and we were splitting the money between the six of us. And it was not enough money for six people to be living off of. Yes. And so that made me think about making the band smaller. And also I wanted to try it creatively. Like I, I wanted to try playing in a three piece again and the challenges and the, and the control over the sound of the band. So those things both equally contributed to going down to a three piece. And so we made untethered moon is just me and Stephen Jay, a three piece. Yeah. And also, yes. Then sort of, I was just sort of thinking the other day when in a slightly different way that, um, you know, with the, the Olympics the next year, and then I was always remembering, you know, when 2012, you know, the UK had the Olympics and it felt like it was just a glorious time when you look back at it and then sort of politically things changed so drastically for this country and then America mm -hmm. and, and it all mm -hmm. feels very different. And then we've had the lockdown for sort of two years and a bit and it's all been a bit strange ever since so it was a bit of a strange yeah. one so well how did how did how was lockdown for you and and sort of navigating that period did that I mean was it was the band happening at that stage or was it slightly on on hold anyway when it all sort of kicked off yeah well we'd actually um started making a record and I was going to make it at home on my computer anyway alone so it ended up working out okay. So the rhythm section guys recorded their stuff as these guys from Brazil. They recorded their, their parts um, at the end of 2019. And then during the lockdown, I was alone and finished the record. Was this the one which is uh, plays the songs of Daniel Johnson or is that um, a different? No, that was a little, yeah, that was a little in between thing that, you know, we just did for fun because we had we played some shows backing him up and and we just a friend of mine wanted to hear the versions of those songs just with uh, like our practice rehearsal versions with me singing them. So I we made a home recording of that stuff for my friend and then we liked it enough that we put it out on a small label. Yeah. But the, label the record I'm talking about is that it's uh, came out in September. It's on Sub Pop. It's called um when when the wind forgets your name it's a sub pop record just going just before that who i love the artwork and the cover for you you know the the songs of daniel johnson who mm. was the person who put that to, you know who um created that that image and painting that's taewon Yu. he also did um perfect from now on keep it like a secret and um ancient melodies of the future album covers right god that's a fantastic cover it's yeah really, isn't it beautiful i love it too it is just really stunning yes so then when the winds get your name this is your the lockdown project mm -hmm. the cover is very different again isn't it who so how so this this feels like quite a different um experience so were these all the songs that you wrote during that period with of kind of yes being masked up and waiting for something to happen Nope, all the songs were written before that. Just just uh, just did the recording at that point. Yes. And then sub pop, was that kind of an easy moment for both of both parties to say, yes, I think it's time. After decades, we'll we'll definitely want to release something by the band. Yeah, it felt like that. Yeah, it felt really um yeah, it, it felt like the perfect thing to me. And they they've been really sweet. Yes. So where did where where are you now on terms of 
built to spill and also tree people is is tree people still going or is that is that just kind of doing reissues for on k records yeah we've had this one reissue and then we're, we're we played a few shows a couple of years ago and we're gonna do um we're gonna probably do a couple shows this summer that's it just uh very not much going on built this and built the spills touring a bunch no records we're not working on any new music but we tour a bunch yes are you finding a whole new audience um discovering the band for the first time because i know a lot of people i've interviewed have mentioned built spill as like so you know important in their life and one of their go-to bands so um yes i just wonder if you've you've you're finding a new kind of crowd coming to see you Sweet. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, there's a lot of young people there. And and then also every once in a while, older people, too, that just got turned on to the band. I think the streaming services are nice. You know, I think people people are down on the streaming services for various reasons. They don't pay the artists very well and that kind of thing. But they're good for like like any person in the whole world can hear your music, you know, and that's really a, that's really a pretty incredible thing that your music is being distributed to every everywhere and you know almost every household whether you know whether or not they take the time to listen to it but having that access is really incredible and I think we've gotten a lot of fans through that stuff yes because I have to say when when I was growing up wanting to hear a band it was really difficult and if you didn't hear it on something like John Peel but you read about it in the NME you there was no way of kind of being able to check it out before buying the buying it and you didn't have that kind of just flicking around, just looking or listening to different bits and pieces for yourself. So it was really, it was really difficult at times, whereas actually now you can, but then, you know, hopefully for the band, they either buy the t-shirt or buy the record vinyl for that matter as well. So, um, yeah, I, yeah. you know. Those are a big investment. It's a big investment to buy a record, you know, as a it kid. Was, it, it was. You only buy one, one or two a month, it felt like to me, and you had to, and then you have 10 songs. So it was really limiting looking back at it from the way that the way that I listen to music now at least it seems crazy that people had to buy each individual record already at this point in my life well it was a struggle to save the money up of like three pound and 99p or four pound totally. 99p and then you know when you bought it you know it was like a bit of a spiritual moment you know you'd go into the city or town buy this copy you know walk around with it take it home play it continuously on side one and then one day turn it over to side mm-hmm. two and think, well, oh my God, am I going to lie? Because you didn't know the material particularly. You might have got an idea of one song. And there was always the disappointment sometimes of going, oh my God, that's a terrible record. I just hate oh, it. Oh, if, ter- if it was terrible, I'd listen to it till I liked it. Yeah, I mean, too, me too. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't, you know, you'd invested too much. <laughs> It was it was too far, you know, but there was, yeah, there was a moment. Because if you went to the, the secondhand record shop and got 50p for it, it felt very disappointing. So. <laughs> but with the tour, is this the biggest tour you've done recently? Is this kind of, because um, it's a massive tour you've got in 2023, isn't it? Yeah, last year we toured more than we ever have. And this year is going to be not quite as much, but definitely our biggest European tour for sure. Yes, amazing. And you're coming to... Well, you're doing America, which is pretty amazing, and Europe, and you're coming to the UK as well. So, it's yeah. um, it is all oh yes. So for a for a thing like this, which is going to basically take up up until June, how do you prepare yourself for it? You know, with you and the band, and uh, and sort of get yourself motivated. Do you have to do any physical working out or kind of mental preparation for it? 
<laughs> no, just I don't even think about it. I, our drummer is going to get here in, in a couple days, and we're going to have three days to practice, and and that should be good. And then whatever other practicing we need, we do a little bit of sound checks and stuff. But no, I don't really, yeah, I don't really do much warming up or anything like that. And will you go? Is this a? Are you going out as a three piece with this or? Yes. So that's so. So, do you also manage the band as well? Or do you have a manager? Um, I'm kind of like the general manager of the band, but when we're on tour, we have a tour manager. Yes, I know. Has has over the decades has it become much more serious for you? Looking at you know, like right, we're going to have to hit this kind of schedule. We're going to have to hopefully sell this amount of merchandise cds just to sort of keep the the finances flowing do you do you have much more of a realistic and adult approach to it all now no i'm pretty i'm pretty casual about it. i try not to think too much about that stuff um our tour manager gives it a lot of thought though she she does a good job but no to me it's just like i i'm i still am like you know feel like a kid or something that i'd be doing this for free you know <laughs> this is excellent we'd love it and do you find from you know city to city in america or country to country in in europe quite a different audience or is there a, a, a particular characteristic characteristic of a built to spill fan um i don't know i feel like uh i feel like it's a pretty you know i don't know it's it's it seems kind of the same everywhere, you know. There's some there's some kids out up front and people my age in the back, and um, you know, it's not it's not very diverse. It's pretty much white, but yeah. there's a little bit of there's a little bit of diversity. A little bit, um, yes. And do you have I, a do you have a support band for most of this as well? Uh, in Europe, yes. Yeah, in Europe, we're going to be with um in the uk i think we're going to be with this band from from boise um called french tips yes and uh just friends of ours really good three-piece um female band and then the second half of the trip we're playing with this band from brazil called Odua, o-r-u-a and that's two of the guys in that band are the guys that play on the last built spill record right I got you. Do you um because I, I did an interview with Niels Lofgren from who was in the E Street band and a solo artist, and he was saying that he um he he kind of gets homesick now. He doesn't like to be away from his home for too long because he misses it all more, a lot. So do you do you ever have those kind of moments of finding it hard to be on the road, just going from town to town playing, or do you just get into it and just think, well, this is it, this is my gig? Well, I'm trying to take my home on the road with me. And I don't, yeah, I don't have much going on in Boise, so no right. Too homesick. I'm, I'm, gonna get too I'm happy to be on tour. I expect Nils Lofgren has got quite a lot of goodies. He probably lives on a ranch somewhere. And do you just lastly? I mean, do you have a kind of a particular set list, or does that change throughout the tour? We know, I don't know. We know maybe 40, 50 songs or something, and then I write a brand new set list every night and change almost everything about it every night yes and will you be doing any smith's not songs on this one because i know you did a cover of big man strikes again on the first album 
Mm -hmm. I don't think we will, but you never know. You know, sometimes during the tour, we someone starts messing around with a song, and next thing you know, we're covering it. But nope, no plans. Yes, and and, and if you could have whispered something to your sixteen-year-old self starting out in in this interesting and and fascinating world of creativity, is there anything in particular you might have just said? Oh, this is a good thing to have um, looked at or focused on. Hmm. I don't really have, I guess, don't sign to CZ Records. Right. Don't ever sign to CZ Records. You'll Don't be that desperate. Something better will come along. That's about my only regret is working with one certain person in this industry. But otherwise, I feel really lucky and feel like things went, went as well as they could for me. There's one thing that happened quite a bit in lockdown or just around there. You know, people were bringing out their books and memoirs and archives. Have you, and box sets, you know, of their material, have you had any thoughts of that yourself? Because obviously the band has got a colossal kind of archive and then there's the tree tree people as well. So I do, have you sort of had thoughts of that, that as well, either putting the material together or writing your book and anything of that nature? Yeah, I, I guess I'm, I've never been interested in like memoirs or people have offered make documentaries and I don't really want to do anything like that. But like putting together a music thing sounds interesting. In fact, a few years ago, we did want to put together a box set of all of our records and um, CZ Records wouldn't cooperate with it. So we kind of dropped that idea. But yes. uh, other, you know, I... I'm not too, I don't care too much about that stuff. I feel like the records are out there. The music's out there. I don't, I don't know. I don't feel like there needs to be much more information about us. Yes. Well, yes, absolutely. I, is there any kind of um, a box in the attic of kind of unreleased material that you think, oh, that needs to be sorted out soon? Or is it pretty much all, all there and um, you're just working on the next project? Yeah, pretty much everything that we ever did came out. When we made when we we made records, we put out every song we recorded, or there was maybe one or two extra ones, and then they ended up coming out eventually in some form anyway. So no, there's not there's almost no extra built to spill material. No. And have you got any more ideas or collaborations with Kelvin at all? Is there anything in the pipeline? No, not really. Um I mean, maybe something could happen sometime, but, you know, we just both are doing different things and haven't, we've seen each other a few times and we don't talk about doing Halo Benders at all. So, yeah, uh, not, probably won't happen, but you never know. So if anybody was like, thinking, I must go and check out Built to Spill, which album would you recommend? Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, personally, I think that we get better, so... I think the new newest record's good, or the one before it. Um, I don't know. The last couple ones are kind of my favorites, but I don't really know. I feel like there was a point, maybe, maybe um, after the '90s. So the, I think our most popular records are the records from the '90s. But I feel like after that is when I got comfortable with my making records and my voice. I think. I think I started singing differently on you in reverse and mm. singing live differently. And to me, the stuff from the nineties is kind of unlistenable. I don't really like the tone of my voice on those records. So I like everything after that. 
Excellent. There you go. It's always good to be more excited about your later stuff. And also I did an interview with Rob, um, Robert Lloyd. Is it Robert Lloyd? From the Nightingales. And he said, Rob Lloyd. And he said that he he just likes playing the new material for various reasons. They, it feels relevant. And also he can't be bothered to you know learn the stuff that he did 30 or 40 years ago because it's a bit of a pain in the ass so he thinks oh well you know if the fans want to hear that just tough luck really they're gonna have to just put up with the new material so i and i don't mind playing old songs at all i like i like playing all the old songs but i just don't like the recordings because i now i sing them the way that i wish i would have sang them on the records yes it's tricky anyway look thank you ever so much for this doug we got there and um Yes, I I felt like a Morrissey song there, being stood up, thinking, "Oh my God!" And you get getting confused about my my timings, but I I put um, in that worked out. Bloy, Bloy, is it Bloisey? Bloisey. Indeed, I think that's that's all we need to know. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to Doug for giving me the time for that interview. This has been the C eighty six show, David Eastor. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do. C86 show, all these have been archived. Aren't you lucky? Indeed you are. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.